good evening. Hope everybody's doing well tonight. If you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. Second Corinthians chapter five. Back uh, back a few years ago, after I've been living here for some time, uh, you guys know, and a lot of you remember, I moved to Oklahoma City and was in in Oklahoma City for about a year, and then moved back. And uh, when I was getting ready to move to Oklahoma City, uh, one of the youth in the church, T.J. Ezel. Uh, texted me or called me or something, I can't remember, uh, but he, he painted me a, a picture, painted me a, a, like an oil painting, I guess, on the canvas and gave it to me as a, as a going away gift, and it was a picture of, uh, of me and him at the Fairdale Fair. Uh, since, he was a, since he was young, uh, we've ridden the Ferris wheel almost every year at the Fairdale Fair. It's the only ride that I'm not too scared to ride. Um, and so almost every year, he and I have ridden the Ferris wheel together. And so he painted this picture, and it was him and me at the Fairdale Fair, and the Ferris wheel was there, and there was the food trucks and all were around. And, uh, and he also painted a, a verse on it, on the, on the bottom of it. He had written out a verse in, in paint. And he had asked me what my favorite verse was, and that's the verse that he put on there. Um, and what I told him was 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Um, and I don't know if that's my favorite verse. Um, I got a lot of favorite verses, I guess. It's hard to have one favorite verse, but that's definitely one of my favorite verses in, in the New Testament and, and, and in the whole Bible. And, and one of the reasons that it's my favorite is because that, that one verse is a very clear, simple, short, concise explanation of the gospel. Okay? It's a, it's a very clear, concise explanation of the gospel just in that, just in that one verse. I've often thought that if I were to ever get a tattoo, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm going to get a tattoo, but if I were ever, I've often thought that if I were ever to get a tattoo, then uh, that might be what I would get. And there's, there's lots of different ways of, of kind of structuring a, a sermon and kind of thinking about how to explain a, a passage and how to look at a passage, but I think, I think one thing in this passage that's helpful is um, to look at the pronouns, and especially in this verse. So if you remember from... Uh, middle school or high school grammar class. Remember what a pronoun is? It's a word that takes the place of a noun or another pronoun. And so a noun is a, is a person, place, thing, or idea. And so a pronoun is a, is a word that takes the place of a person, place, uh, thing, or idea, right? So if you're talking about, if we're talking about the church and we keep, uh, you know, we're talking about the church building and so we keep saying, well, you know, First Baptist Church Fairdale is across from Dairy Queen and First Baptist Church Fairdale is is over beside the funeral home and First Baptist Church Fairdale is on Fairdale Road. Um, that gets kind of monotonous to keep saying the same name over and over and over. So uh, in English, we can use pronouns. And so we, we would say that First Baptist Church Fairdale is across from Dairy Queen and it is next to the funeral home and it is on Fairdale Road. And so we replace that with the pronoun it. And so in English, we have lots of pronouns. Um, you know, we have we and I and he and she and they and, and all these different words. But in this particular verse, there are three pronouns that I think it will be helpful for us to, to identify tonight. Um, who are these pronouns referring to and what are, these, uh, what are these people doing? And so we have three in this verse. The first one is he, the second one is him, and then thir the third one is we. He, him, and we. And so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read the passage. I'm, I'm, we're going to focus on chapter or verse 21, but I'm going to start reading in verse uh, 
I'm going to start reading in verse 16 and read down through the, the, the first two verses of chapter 6. Okay? So Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here's verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, come to you tonight thankful for your word. God, we believe with all of our heart that your word is literally you speaking to us. And we thank you that you have done that. We thank you that you've not left us in the world to, to try to figure out things on our own. You've not left us in the world to try to figure you out on our own. But you've told us about yourself and you've told us about ourselves and You've told us about sin, and you've told us about the best way to live and, and bad ways to live, and you've told us about the work of salvation that you have accomplished for us on the cross. I've got to pray that in the, in the next few minutes here tonight that your spirit would be working in us. Father, I pray that your gospel would be clearly seen from, from this passage, and I pray that it would motivate us to live a life worthy of the gospel, and I pray that it would motivate us to share that gospel with those around us. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, so he, him, and we. The first, the first pronoun in, in, in this verse is, is he. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when, he, when, when Paul references here to, to he, who is he referencing? Who is he referring to? I'm just going to tell you, and we'll see a little bit later on maybe why we know this, but, but when God says he here at the beginning of this verse, he's talking about God the Father. God the Father. And, and you'll notice, you may notice, that in, in this verse, this is the only person, the only actor in, in the verse that's actually doing something. Right, all the other uh, all the other people in the verse, him that we're going to look at later, we that we're going to look at later, are are having things done to us, are receiving actions. Right, it's it's passive, but but here with God the Father, He made, He's doing something, He's active, He's the one that's actually um, acting and, and changing situations and and doing things. He's the actor in in this verse. God is doing. The action and what he's what he's doing, we're going to see is he's working for our salvation. God the Father is working for our salvation. Look back um, to to verse seventeen. 
chapter 5, verse 17, right after we began reading. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then listen to verse 18. And this is from God. Again, that's a reference there. The, the word God is a reference to God the Father. All this, the fact that we're a new creation, the fact that old has passed away, the fact that new has come, all this, Paul says, is from God the Father, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And verse 19 says, that is, in Christ, God the Father was reconciling the world to himself. God the Father was reconciling the world to himself. Make, make no mistake, God is the one that saves us. God the Father has saved us. Sometimes we, in the church, sometimes we can get this mis, misunderstanding, this, this bad idea, and we kind of separate God the Father and, and Jesus. And that's not something new that's been happening for, for centuries. There was a guy named Marcion back in the first and second centuries, um, the, the 100s and 200s AD, that, that made this exact same mistake. And, and, and what Marcion taught was that the, in the Old Testament, in, in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you see this, this God that's angry and, and, and mean and, and, and full of rage. And, and, um, and, and he was always trying to get people back and, and punish people. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus, this, this God that is kind and gracious and merciful and forgiving and, and, and this guy, Marcion, even, even split those up and said those are two different gods. The Old Testament God and the New Testament God are two different gods. And, and we don't say that, I don't think. I don't think anybody here would say that. But sometimes in our minds, we might have the, the misunderstanding that, that God the Father is angry at us, and Jesus, God the Son, is gracious to us or, or merciful to us. And that's not true. It is true that God is angry towards sin. It is true that God is, is wrathful towards sin. But listen, it's also true that Jesus is angry towards sin. It's also true that Jesus is wrathful towards sin. If you don't think so, just read the book of Revelation, especially the last part of it, chapter 19, 20. It talks about when Jesus comes back and how he's going to judge sin when he comes back. That's not the Father doing that. That's Jesus, the Son, doing that. So yes, the Father is angry towards sin and wrathful towards sin and those kind of things, but Jesus is also. And it's also true that Jesus is merciful toward us and Jesus is is gracious toward us, and Jesus is forgiving. But listen, it's also true that God the Father is merciful toward us, and God the Father is gracious toward us, and God the Father is forgiving of us. There's an, an analogy that, that, that people like to use sometimes about the, the gospel to, to explain the gospel, and it's this, this courtroom analogy, right? And so, so we're in the court, and, and we're the defendant's, and you've got God the Father on the throne, and he's presiding over the, over the, the proceedings. And, and sometimes even uh, in, this, in this kind of analogy, sometimes you'll have Satan as the prosecutor bringing our sins before us. And then you'll often have Jesus as the defense attorney. And, and in, in the analogy, it almost comes across that God the Father is this judge on the, thro- on, the, on the bench, and Jesus, our defense attorney, is convincing him to be gracious toward us and convincing him to forgive our sins. But that's not the picture the Bible gives. The picture the Bible gives, look, in Christ, God the Father was reconciling the world to himself. Verse 18, all this is from God the Father 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself. God the Father is, is gracious toward us. God the Father is merciful toward us. God the Father is saving toward us. There's also a place for, for anger toward sin and for wrath toward sin and for, for judgment on those who are not taking refuge in, in, in the Savior. But God the Father is the author of salvation. God the Father is the one who saves us. God the Father is the one that planned out the plan of salvation. He made this plan of salvation. The Father did. The second pronoun in this verse that's important is, is him. It says, for our sake he made him to be sin. Who is him? It's Jesus, right? If we take out the, the phrase in the middle there and we, and we look at it this way, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, then, then it's obvious to us that it's Jesus, right? Jesus is the one that, that, that knew no sin. Hebrews chapter 4 says this. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is God himself who has come down and taken on the, the flesh of humanity, become one of us, and has lived a perfect life, has, has never sinned. And yet, this verse says that God the Father made him sin. Now, that doesn't mean that God the Father forced him to commit sins, right? It means that, that, that God the Father uh, made it so that he became sin. One commentator, David Garland, says this. He says, even though Jesus was sinless, God deals with him as though he were a sinner by letting him die in a cursed death. In the Jewish uh, sacrificial system, the animal offered up to atone for sins had to be holy and without defect precisely so that both the priest and the one that's offering the sacrifice could be confident that the death that died was not its own. In the Old Testament Jewish sacrificial system that God set up, I would sin, I would be guilty of sin, and so I would offer a sacrifice. And, and the priest would lay his hands on the head of the, uh, of the lamb or on the head of the goat and would symbolically transfer my sins off of me onto that animal. And then that animal would be slaughtered. The animal would die in my place, right? Remember the story of Abraham and, and Isaac when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And so Abraham takes him up to the top of the mountain. And remember Abraham saying the whole time, I know that God promised that, that, that I was going to have this great nation through Isaac, that Isaac was going to be the, the one that it came through. And, and Hebrews shows us that Abraham was believing the whole time that even if he killed his son Isaac, that God would raise him back from the dead because he knew that God was going to keep this promise he made to him. But so they go up to the top of the mountain, and Abraham's there, and he's got the knife, and he's ready. He's got Isaac bound up on the altar, and he's ready to, to kill his son. And, and God comes through the heavens, the voice of God comes through the heavens and says, wait, don't do that. And remember what they find over in the thorns caught that replaces Isaac, takes Isaac's place. He, he finds a, a ram there. And Abraham takes the ram, and he slaughters it in the place of his son Isaac. Remember, even on the way up the mountain, Isaac himself looks at Abraham and says, Dad, we got the, we got the wood for the, for, the, for the sacrifice, right? And we've got the torch to start the fire for the sacrifice, but where's the sacrifice, right? And remember what Abraham's answer was? That's right, the Lord will provide, God will provide. 
And he did in that lamb. And that lamb took the place of Isaac. In the same way, God made it so that Jesus, who knew no sin, just like that perfect lamb was without blemish, God made it so that Jesus, who is without blemish, has taken our sins on himself and has died in our place. We deserve to die because of our sins. Jesus doesn't deserve to die because he doesn't have sins. And yet God made it so that Jesus died in our place as our substitute, as our sacrifice. Again, David Garland says this. He says, Jesus experienced the consequences for human sin. The one who lived a sinless life died a sinner's death, estranged from God and the object of God's wrath. He was treated as a sinner in his death. Jesus wasn't a sinner, right? Jesus never committed a sin. We just read that from Hebrews chapter 4. He was the high priest who, uh, who, who understands our weaknesses and yet is without sin. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Jesus was not a sinner, and yet in his death, God treated him as a sinner. The Father treated him as a sinner. This is one reason I, I like Micah chapter 7 so much. That was our opening call to worship. Uh, Micah may be my favorite of the minor prophets, but I, I love this ending to Micah in chapter 7 where he says, he says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. He says, rejoice not over me and my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Mike is not saying he doesn't have sins. Mike is not saying he's not wrong. Micah says, I am wrong, and I'm I'm going to bear the indignation. I'm going to bear the anger. I'm going to bear the judgment of the Lord because he's right in his judgments against me. I'm wrong. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. And then he says this, until he pleads my cause and executes, just, executes judgment for me. That's an, that's an odd phrase. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, Right? Micah has said he's a sinner. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him. He says he's sinned against the Lord, and yet he's waiting for the Lord to execute judgment for him. It should be, it should say that he's waiting for the Lord to execute judgment against him, right? Because he's admitted he's a sinner. He's admitted that he's sinned against the Lord. He's admitted he's going to bear the indignation of the Lord. He should say until... He ple- until he executes his judgment against me. But he doesn't. He says, until he executes his judgment for me. That's what we see in the, in the life of Jesus, what we see in the death of Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to become sin, to take our sins off of us and put them on him. And then here's the reason, the third, the third pronoun, we. He says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So, so that is a phrase that, that tells us, here, here's the purpose. Here's what this is all about. Here's the reason for this, right? God made him who knew no sin to become sin, and here's the reason why. So that we could become the righteousness of God. So that we could become the righteousness of God. And listen, that's our greatest need. Our greatest need is to have the righteousness of God. Listen to a few passages. 
Listen to Leviticus 11, verse 44. It says this, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Leviticus 19, verse 2 says this, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 20, verse 7, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And then in the New Testament, 1 Peter 1, verse 14 to 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Turn with me just for a second to Matthew chapter 5. Look at, look at two passages here. Our greatest need is to have God's righteousness. Our greatest need is to be holy. We can't obey that commandment to be holy, right? We're not holy. We're not righteous. Matthew chapter 5, this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest sermon recorded in the, in, in the Bible. This is Jesus preaching, Jesus, Jesus teaching here. Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 17. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now listen to this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes when we think about the, the Pharisees, I think we get this idea that they were, they were kind of too... Um, they were kind of too sold out or too fanatical about their religion. They were kind of too fanatical about following God. They were kind of, uh, and, and, and sometimes we can kind of think this way about, about legalism, right? That, that, that we're going to go, you know, I remember we were having a discussion here at church one time about, about alcohol. And someone said, someone in the church said, we want to go above and beyond what the Bible says, right? And sometimes we think that that, that, that can be, um, that, that we can be more righteous or we can be more strict or, or than, than, than what the scriptures are. And yet here, Jesus says the problem of the Pharisees is that they're not righteous enough. We need to be more righteous even than they are because they have all these rules and things that they're doing, but their hearts are not with God. Their hearts are far from him. Look at, look at one other passage in, in Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 43. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more, uh, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Y'all, this, this is our problem. We can't be perfect. We can't be righteous. We can't be holy the way that God commands for us to be holy, to be perfect, to be righteous. Our biggest need is 
to be worthy of coming into God's presence. Our biggest need is to be worthy of being God's people. And yet, back in 2 Corinthians 5, where we are tonight, it says that God the Father has done that. God the Father has made a way for us to be righteous. God the Father has, has made a way to take people that are, that are guilty of sin and make us righteous and holy and perfect. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What happens in the gospel is that Jesus takes our sins off of us onto him and Jesus gives us his righteousness. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see us anymore as, as sinners. He doesn't see, see us anymore as, as guilty. He doesn't see us anymore as, as rebels. He sees us now as the perfect righteousness of, of Jesus. Jesus, the one that was tempted in every way and yet without sin, when God looks at us, he sees us as people who were tempted in every way and yet without sin. Our sins have been cleansed. They've been removed from us. And Jesus' perfect obedience has been given to us. I want to go back just for a second, though, to that word we. Who is the we? It's people, right? It's people. But is it every person? Look again a little bit more closely. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in Jesus, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Not everyone is going to become the righteousness of God, right? Only those who are in Jesus. Only those who have believed in the Lord. Only those who have turned from, from their sins and repented of their sins, renounced their rebellion against God and bowed themselves down to King Jesus. Only those will receive the righteousness of the Lord. So what? What, what, do, we, what do we do with this? We rejoice in this, right? We rejoice because this is true, and if we believed in Jesus, then this is a, a glorious saying that God's made it so that we can come into his presence, so that we can be his people, so that we can be righteous with the righteousness of, of Jesus. But that's only, only part of it. Look at the verse right before this one, chapter 5, verse 20. Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So if you're using a different translation, some translations might say, we beg you to be reconciled to Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul knows that the only way for us to be righteous is if we have the righteousness of Jesus on us. But the only way to have the righteousness of Jesus on us is to be reconciled to God to renounce our rebellion against him, to turn away from the, the sins that separate us from him, to bow ourselves down to the king and trust in the Lord Jesus to cleanse us from our sins. And Paul implores those around him to do that. I wonder when was the last time that we implored someone to believe in Jesus? I wonder when was the last time that we implored someone to turn from their sins and to receive the righteousness of Christ? Look at verse, or chapter 6. Again, he says, Working together with them, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. You know, there's lots of people around us in Fairdale, in Kentucky, 
people in our families, people that, that we work with, people that we go to school with, people that we know, our neighbors. There are people all around us that have received the grace of God in vain. I, I would say that there are few people in, in Fairdale that don't know the gospel story. There may be some. There's probably a lot that misunderstand it. But I would say that there are few people in our community who, don't, who haven't heard of God, haven't heard of Jesus, haven't heard of sins, haven't heard of salvation, and yet they've heard of those things in vain. Their hearing of them have not helped them any. Their hearing of them have not, has not done anything for them. It's in, it's in vain. For he says in verse 2, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When's the last time that we implored someone in our families to believe in Jesus? When's the last time we begged a neighbor to turn from their sins and trust in the Lord? When's the last time that we had a conversation with a coworker or with someone we go to school with about the truth of the gospel? There's a there's a day coming, y'all. We're about to have the Lord's Supper in a second. The Lord's Supper reminds us of two things, right? It points us backward to the cross, reminding us of, that, that God has provided a way of salvation, all the stuff we've been talking about tonight. And, but then the Lord's Supper does a second thing, too. It points us to the future. It reminds us that there's a day coming when the Lord's Supper is going to be done with. We're not going to be doing the Lord's Supper anymore because we're going to be eating at the, at the banquet table of the Lamb. Right? And there's a, there's a time period between those two things. There's a time period between the cross and between the return of Jesus. This is the time of salvation. This is the day of salvation, right? He says, this is the favorable time. This is the day of salvation. There's, there's going to come a day, and, and, and I pray that it comes soon, there's going to come a day where salvation is no longer possible. There's going to come a day where we can no longer have a conversation with our family or neighbors or friends about the Lord. There's going to come a day, I, I remember one commentator speaking of it this way, there's going to come a day where when Jesus returns in judgment against sin, and he says in that day there's no refuge from Christ. There's no refuge from Christ's punishment, judgment towards sin. There's only refuge in Christ. There's no safety from him when he returns in judgment against sin. There's only safety in him. Do we have family that are not in him? Do we have friends that are not in him? Do we have neighbors and coworkers that are not in him? Let's recommit ourselves. Now that this is the favorable time, now that this is the day of salvation, that salvation is still possible, that the mercy of, of, of the Lord is here, that the patience of the Lord is here, that Jesus has not yet come back to judge sin, Let's implore those around us to be reconciled to God. Let's be ambassadors for Christ, reconciling the world to him. This is a glorious thing he says in, in, uh, in verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Whenever we share the gospel with somebody, God is doing that through us. The Holy Spirit is doing that through us. We don't have to try to convince somebody to believe in the gospel, right? We don't have to try to talk them into it. We don't have to be really good at being convincing and like a, you know, have, have good sales techniques and, and, and always be trying to close the sale, all that kind of stuff, right? We have to present the gospel to people and God makes his appeal through us. 
the Holy Spirit makes his appeal through us. Verse 18, this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Y'all, we have the the joy and the privilege of, of, of being the intermediary, reconciling people to God, bringing people who are in rebellion against him to him. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of salvation. God's entrusted to us the message of salvation. There are people around us who that message has come to them in vain. There may be some people around us that that message has not come to at all yet. Let's commit ourselves to being people who are reconciling the world to our Savior, reconciling the world to our God, that God's doing that through us. I'm not going to quote, I'm not going to get the quote completely right, but Charles Spurgeon, a famous uh, pastor from England back some time ago, said, "If, if people be damned, if people end up in hell for eternity, at least let them go there jumping over our bodies trying to stop them. Let's commit ourselves to being the reconciling force between our God and our family, our God and our neighbors, our God and our friends, our God and our co-workers. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much tonight that you have provided a way of salvation. God, we thank you so much tonight that you have reconciled us to yourself, that you've taken our sins off of us, and that you've given us your righteousness. God, we haven't earned it in, in this verse. We're the only ones that haven't done anything. You made the one who had no sin to become sin. You're the one that made it happen. Jesus is the one that that became sin for us and died our death for us. We're not doing anything in this verse. We're just receiving all the benefits. We're becoming the righteousness of, of God in Christ. Father, we thank you that you have done that. And God, I pray that you would be using us in the lives of those around us. Father, I pray you would give us boldness and remove fear, remove doubt, remove lack of confidence that, 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 that we can do things the right way or say the right stuff or have the right answers. God, I pray that you would embolden us, that those around us would know the truth of the gospel and that many around us would be believing it and would be being reconciled to you. God, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.